Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we discussed last week, this is no passing phrase given by Paul. It's a confirmation of the grace bestowed on us by God through Jesus. And because God is faithful, we have confidence that He will sustain us till the end by giving us His peace in the midst of every circumstance. In the end, God's wisdom for His foolish saints was simple. Don't be divided. Instead, be united in Christ. This morning, we turn our attention to chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Here, Paul reminds the Corinthians that no one can figure out the message of the cross on their own. It sounds foolish to those who are lost. It completely goes against the logic and philosophies of the world. For this reason, many will reject faith in Jesus as a substitute for their religious work. Belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus simply sounds unbelievable. And Paul's question for the Corinthians is the same we ask ourselves today. Will I continue to rely on the wisdom of the world, or will I come to grips with my own weakness and accept the foolishness of the cross? Conversion is a very interesting thing. Think about it. The idea of being converted, the idea of moving from one category of a human to another category. The Bible says that there are those who are lost, those who are perishing. Our text will describe that. There are those who are at war with God, and then there are those who are saved. There are those um, who are now reconciled to God. There are those who are at peace with God. How do you move from one category to the next? And what are the requirements? And that is for um, that has a much debate over the last 2,000 years where men and women have wrestled with and, um, and battled over this incredible question, what does it mean to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What, what does it mean to be on your way to heaven and to not be on your way to hell? And the Apostle Paul is writing about these issues to this church in Corinth that there is a clear, a clear distinction in the lives in which they used to live and the lives that they are living now. They are living in a, in a culture and in a society um, where this change in their own living, this change in their own behavior, this change in their own thinking is causing them to stand out from everyone else around them. And what, what happened? What, what's different about you? And the answer is, I, I've been converted. I've been changed. Um, some of us call it, I've been saved. And what is that? That's a, that's an, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to try to describe. And especially in our culture today, especially in our culture today, it's really interesting how much we want to talk about that, even as church leaders. We want to discuss that. How do we help people? How do we help our church to continue to grow? And then this is where we just need texts like this. We need reminders like this. We need... Um, to be thinking through what Kelsey led us through, how do we pray like this? Because it can be really easy for us to trade genuine faith in Jesus Christ, a genuine understanding that I am a sinner and that God is holy and that the only thing that helps me move from one side, lost, to this new side, saved, is the work of Jesus Christ that is given to me by putting my trust in him. That just sounds crazy sometimes. 
And honestly, it's, it's, it's hard to sell. And I've been tempted at times, and it's not, it's not like I ever sat down and even realized I was doing it. Sometimes I would take truths that exist within the Christian faith, and, and I'd get a little bit lost or a little bit turned around. You, you've heard this truth, right? Like, we need to get out there, and they need to see Jesus in us. My wife and I, when we were in grad school, um, had some new neighbors, and they needed to see Jesus in us. And so Andrea and I genuinely loved them. Andrea and I genuinely cared about them. They came from a pretty interesting background, but Andrea and I knew that we shouldn't look down on them or judge them, but to just love them like Jesus would love them, and so that we did. We invited them into our home, and we ate with them, and they returned the favor, and we ate with them at their house too. And our kids played together all the time. And I remember just thinking, I don't know how much they're going to buy into all of the deep theological truths that I know, but like maybe they'll just love us, or at least you. <laughs> and we kind of won them over to us. We won them over to our community. They started attending our church. And, and, and that's where the lines begin to get fuzzy. I want to ask you, like, what were you converted to? And most of us, when we think about that time when we have moved from lost to saved, to at war with God, to at peace with him, if you really begin to think back, how many of you can think of like someone that helped you through that journey? It wasn't you in a hotel room with the Gideon's Bible, was it? Like that, by the way, that does happen. But the majority of us, how many of you have a name or a face and a relationship? And by the way, I, I don't think that's wrong. I just had to, Andrew and I, we had this conversation. So when we leave Illinois, because I don't think we're going to like live here forever, boy, I really hope that our neighbors have not just fallen in love with us and not just fallen in love with this relationship that we were able to have with one another, but that they really love Jesus. I've been in church meetings. I've met with other pastors from other churches, and we really wrestle with this. How can we, how can we help our churches grow? And, and, and we came up with a plan, and, and the plan comes from Scripture. It's not like we're reading some crazy book over on the side. No, it comes in the Scripture that we really need to help our community know how much we love them and care for them, genuinely. Like we, we need to figure out a way to help them to fall in love with just how we love people and how we care for people. And I've heard some pretty gifted pastors and communicators who genuinely, from the bottom of their heart, had like a cause that they wanted their church to really champion in their community. And then they would talk about, and I'll tell you, there are people in our community that have a real burden for those who are disenfranchised or marginalized or poor or left out. We, those that somehow need educational gifts and abilities. And can you imagine how this ministry will then reach out into the community? And, and by the way, not just those that we are serving, but others in our community, they're going to come alongside and then we'll be able to do this together and then maybe they will come to faith. I totally believe in that. We do that. And I want us to not stop doing that. We, we build houses, seems like every fall, with Habitat for Humanity, and we invite our community to come join us and to love people alongside of us. And I really hope 
that somehow that they get to see Jesus at work in me as well. And, and then I just want to make sure, and this is, I, I don't even know how to do this perfectly. I, I just want to make sure they don't only fall in love with our love for other people. But they fall in love with Jesus. And it just keeps going. I mean, churches are notorious. This church, I'm not, I'm not here going, ah, ah, yeah, you know that church down the road? That Eagle Heights church, that's the one. What do you guys call it, an information guide? Is that what Brent calls that thing? Oh, that's good. Now that's gold. I need that next time Brent and I have coffee. Go to Eagle Heights. They have an information guide, not a bulletin. But anyway, uh, no, don't go to Eagle Heights. Stay here. But, oh, the Eagle Heights is a great church. We prayed for you guys last Sunday. Back to where we were at. Brent and I both struggle with how do we help people understand and appreciate that the Bible will give you like some really good insight on how to have a better life? Marital problems, you having some? Having a hard time raising your kids? Do you have some other needs? Like the Bible is God's information book to us, giving us insight into how life should be. And if you come and be a part of us, we can help you with that. We will help you raise your kids and we will help you fix your marriage. We can help you with your finances. You name it, there's something in the Bible to address it. And we want you to come and be a part of that. And along the way, we really hope and pray that you find Jesus. And I just, I have to stop sometimes. This text actually forces me to stop. Sometimes I just want to keep on going. But when I hit 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, okay, no, let's, let's deal with what, like, it's really all about. Like, those other things, uh, Andrea and I opening up our lives and our home, like, listen, yes, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Us loving our community, yes, that's what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. Us experiencing the better life in all of the aspects and sharing that with everyone else, yes, we cannot stop doing those things, but then it's time for us to just stop and to reflect upon, why are we doing those things? Why do we want our church to grow? What is it that is actually happening? inside of each and every single one of us that has eternal significance. And that's when you and I have to just stop and say, I guess really there are two ways that we can look at this. I mean, maybe the sociologists and the psychologists aren't wrong. Like, maybe there is a psychology of religion. And then there's faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's both. And actually, Paul says there's both. Paul seems to understand the psychology of religion and the sociology of religion and then faith in Jesus. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian people, what I called you to, what I gave to you, and therefore it's a sobering reminder for us, what are we giving people? And it's just time for us to admit that I hope that at the very beginning and then underneath and through everything else in our relationships and in the way that we love our community and in the way that we experience the life that God has designed for us and experiencing this human flourishing, as some call it, actually is Jesus. It actually is the way of the cross and, and the foolishness 
that the world does not understand, you and I do understand because we have faith in Jesus Christ. The text begins, verse 18. Are you there? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And Paul begins with this phrase. This is what's going to kind of guide our thoughts here, these first two verses, verses 18 and 19, with this statement about the word of the cross. Now, one of the things, you and I say the word of the cross, it sounds religious, you know, the cross. I've got one around my neck. The cross, you know, the one that we polish, the cross. Um, my, my wife loves crosses. Whenever I travel to different parts of the world, we, we try to buy them. And we, we usually don't get ornate ones. We really kind of like ones that are the most basic. But even more than just um, the most basic, like the cross is an instrument of execution. The cross at its very core is like a sign or a symbol of death, no matter how well you polish it up or decorate it. And so the Apostle Paul says this in verse 18, for the word of the cross, which is what our conversion finds its meaning in, its basis in, its truth in, not, not a relationship like with the pastor or with another good Christian, not, 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 not a cup of coffee with a friend, Like the word of the cross, he says, is folly, it's foolishness, it's a joke, it's unbelievable, it's laughable, it's embarrassing to a certain group of people, you know. By the way, maybe to you. Maybe right now you're hearing it and you're going, wow, that's actually describing me. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, those who are Those who don't understand that they have a sin problem with God, that they're at war with God, they hear about the cross and its solution to their sin problem and they just just don't get it. Don't understand why you're making such a big deal of it. Don't understand why you always have to talk about it. Why do you always have to talk about the cross? Get over it. Paul says people that have that attitude about it are those who are perishing. Those who don't understand how that they should genuinely understand it and apply it and appreciate it and what he's going to end with and to glory in it. He goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That same cross is foolishness and power. What's the dividing? What's the dividing rod for that? Those who are saved and those who are lost. Those who understand that they're at war with God and those that have no understanding why God would be so mad at them. What on earth have I done? He goes on to say, and this is where it gets more interesting, for it is written, that's Paul reading into, back into the rich parts of the Old Testament, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's God speaking. Like all the things that you and I are totally impressed with, how many, how many letters behind her name? Wow. Like even when we like to talk about those people that we were really impressed with, oh, you need to hear them. They are so smart. We usually don't say, oh, you really need to listen to them. They are so dumb. They are so foolish. They don't know anything that they're talking about. They're not, they're not educated at all, and you can totally tell, and you really need to listen to them. They don't say that. No, it's look who they are. Look how smart they are. Look how insightful they are. That's how we think all the time. 
God says, like, he's fighting against that. Like, God, God, God says, like, from his perspective, this is, we need to hear this, especially in this town. Like, that doesn't impress him. I know, it impress, I know that it impresses me. I, I believe it probably impresses you. It doesn't impress him. <laughs> you really shouldn't be so surprised. And by the way, I'm not saying because he's grumpy it doesn't impress him. Right? Some people hear that and they go, well, you know, because God, he, he's just always grumpy. Uh, how do you impress, like, the one who knows all with the little bit that you know? Think about it. It's like me going, hey, LeBron, look. <laughs> and he would go, Canadian, right? And i go, yeah. <laughs> and you're not related to Steve Nash. No, okay. So think about it. Think about this statement. Like, and God, by the way, the God, by the way, is not only not impressed, but then for you to try to impress him with this, he fights against that. You're going to try to impress me with this? You're trying to impress me with this. You're going to try to get into a who knows more conversation with me. That's what Paul's talking about here. This is what he does to the wisdom of the world. This is what he says to the discernment of the world. And Paul continues. Paul actually points out, if you think about it, you know, that, that weakest link idea. Paul's going to use this idea, and, and by the way, there is no foolishness in God, but the Apostle Paul is going to say that the foolishness of God is better than the greatest wisdom of men. So literally, like the, the dumbest thing that God could think of, which God doesn't have dumb thoughts, but you hear where he's coming out on this? Like if there was like a foolishness in God, which there isn't, but truly like the most foolish thing about God is still the best and greater than whatever any man or any woman could ever produce. Verse 20, here's how he describes this. And I, I really want you to feel like the posturing of God towards those of us that have um, a confidence or an eagerness to, to share that, a pride, an eagerness to share an achievement. God says this, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Okay, what's the scribe? That's the lawyer. No, no lawyer jokes here. Seriously, no lawyer jokes. What, what, is, what, do lawyers, what do scribes do? What do lawyers do? Lawyers try to hold people to regulations and standards that have been set by them by others. And then other lawyers try to find ways in the best interest. Let's just assume that in the best interest, how, how do we get out of this? How do we... How do, we, how do we work with this? How do we stay within the law? A good lawyer does that. How do we stay within the law? And by the way, there are religious ways in which this happened, right? So the Paul, Paul was great at this. How do we understand the law? And he's not trying to get out of it. No, the Apostle Paul's trying to understand the law. And he's trying to, to apply it and apply it well. And so this is what scribes do. And, and you got to admit, like the... The intellectual prowess is amazing. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? My wife likes to point out, just because you might be more articulate doesn't make you right when we argue. That's wise, isn't it? You know those people that you're having a conversation with them and they just make you feel dumb? And, so, and that makes you wonder whether or not you're right? 
Paul says, like, where, where is this debater? Bring him here. And then he points out this. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The answer there is, yes, he has. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly, through foolishness of what we preach, which is the cross, to save those who believe. So notice what he's saying here is that there really, there isn't a wisdom, there's not a debating style, there's not a legal strategy that can somehow get God in a corner and he goes, you got me. Wow, impressed. Like none of that exists. And in fact, God is doing his best to look at those within power and go, you are so weak. Those who feel in their mind that they have intellectual prowess, you are a lightweight. Those who feel like they are articulate, yeah, I gave you even the ability to put those ideas together, God says, and none of these things ever put me in your debt. None of these things ever fix our problem. In fact, like you need me. You need me to get right with me. Is that not God's point in the Bible? You need me to get right with me. How's that doing you working on it on your own? You're figuring it out mentally. You're figuring out the legal ramifications. Well, I'm sure God's totally okay with the way that I'm living my life because there's a, a, a rather interesting, I'm not, I'm not you know, even capable of going into it, but um, I, I guess there's a, a recent professor at OSU that's writing this conversation about how it is possible to both hate the sinner uh, or sorry, I hate the sin and love the sinner. And it's been very interesting to kind of, I have not read the book yet. Um, I, I, I probably need to read it because it's fascinating how this OSU philosophy professor is trying to think through these things. And boy, the way I, I, I can just get kind of follow along. Man, that's impressive. I, I just know this, that all of these attempts that every one of us makes, all of these attempts that every one of us makes are still always utterly and completely dependent upon him. Even the ability to think or the breath in my lungs, it, it still draws me into this hopefully humbling posture that without him, none of this could even proceed. And Paul is pointing that out. He says in verse 22, describing two very specific people, one of which he is a Jew. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. By the way, I, I think that's just great, two categories for humans. There are those of us that love signs. I'm a simple person. I just want God to come down and show me that he raised from the dead. I just need a sign. Just show me a miracle and I'll believe. Yeah, I, don't need, I don't need some kind of crazy argument. I don't need to figure all of that out. I just want a sign, right? And that's, he says, that's, Jews kind of have that tendency, he says. And then there are Greeks that aren't really looking for signs. They just want to make sure that they're not being foolish. They just want to make sure that it makes sense. It's interesting that just... Before he showed up in Corinth, the Apostle Paul was in Athens. And he is he's speaking to them on philosophical terms. He's quoting their own prophets, their own, or, or, their, or their own poets, their own, their own philosophers. And then the Apostle Paul starts talking about the resurrection of the dead. And Luke records that those great philosophers just started laughing at him. 
Okay, we thought you were going to go somewhere that actually had some intellectual uh, veritas, some truth, some, some strength. But now that you're talking, this, this is literally, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and is there like an Easter bunny too? They, they laugh at him. They totally dismiss him when he starts talking about the resurrection of the dead. And you don't believe me that could happen. Try that in your next ethics class. Try, try that in your next philosophy class. Just start talking. I mean, you literally, we all know this will happen. You need like a special room like this on a special time like this, in a special audience like this to be able to talk like this, right? Because Jews want signs and Greeks want wisdom. In verse 23, look at this. But we, Paul says, that's he and Sosthenes that are described in the very beginning of this book. But it also then creeps down all the way to us that you and I, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews who want a sign. And no, 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 not that sign. Not the fact that Jesus rises from the dead. That's not the sign that we want. We want another sign. And Jesus says, there will not be another sign given to you. No more signs. An evil and a corrupt generation asks for signs. I'm going to give you the sign of my resurrection. You probably will not take it, but that's just what it is, accept it or not. And so the Apostle Paul is describing an approach towards God, which, by the way, then says he's really not trying to sell himself to us. You do know that, right? God's not trying to, like, win you over because if he could somehow get you on his side, he'd be more complete. He's not trying to get you to like him on Facebook. He's not trying to get you to somehow agree with him so that he can, when, when you and I agree with one another, we feel better about ourselves. When you and I agree with God, like he just becomes pleased with us because he knows that we are now, when we are in agreement with God, that we are now right. You see the difference? But he doesn't just feel better about himself. We don't, we don't help his worth. It's just not the way the Bible describes God in any way, shape, or form. Verse 24, but to those who are called, that's you and I, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is greater than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the Apostle Paul wants everybody to know in Corinth and I want everybody to know in Stillwater and I need to remind myself Therefore, when I open up my life and help win people to Jesus, I need to help them see Jesus in me and not just a great me in me. And when I help, when we help our community to know how much we love them, we need to point them to Jesus and not just how loving we are. And when we help people see like the better life, this is why it calls us to be profoundly honest and transparent like we need to let them see all of what is inside of us so that they can actually see the real truth about Christ in us. Not just this better life that you and I could have figured out whether or not we were following Jesus or not, but the better life that comes by you and I being honest about our sin, confessing our sin, and then seeing what Jesus Christ has done by the power of his spirit in our lives. You see the difference? That's what helps people see Jesus. And if they see that and they begin to just recognize by the power of the Spirit about their own brokenness, then we can, we can say, wow, now that's a life that's changed. That, that's a life that at the end of time when they meet God is like legitimately putting their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's conversion. And I really do think it's good for every one of us to just stop occasionally, not to throw seeds of doubt. I never want to do that. But to honestly ask, so what were you converted to? A good friend? A good cause? Better way of living? Or the foolishness of humanity and the wisdom of God, his name is Jesus. So then how does this fundamentally change us? Look how this section ends. I, I love this because what Paul ultimately leads us towards is kind of how you and I get to walk out of here. Um, th- this can be kind of humbling, can't it? That God's not impressed with anything. You can kind of almost walk out and go, well then honestly, what am I supposed to brag about if I can't brag about my degrees? And if I can't talk about how I'm an awesome basketball player, what's the point of living? I'm honest, I'm not kidding. I have people that, that talk. I think like that. What's the point then? Paul says, like, the point then is Jesus. Like, the point then, this goes back to him all the time. Like, therefore, then we now boast in the Lord is what Paul's going to draw us to. The reason why all of this begins to bring great, bring great meaning and purpose is, is what we mean and the power of the statement that in the end everything ends up in the glory of God. I, I still remember those people who keep drawing me back to that. I just go, wow, like it's so easy for me for, to forget just how dependent and grateful I should be for God. For, for any ability that I have, for my next breath. But I, I can actually believe that the health that I have was a lot of hard work to get here. And, and, and the, the benefits that my family has, that, that comes from a lot of hard work and dedication, right, hon? We worked hard to, to, to make this family like this. But if you stop me, and it's usually times like two o'clock I had on Friday when, when there's a funeral service for an 11-year-old girl, when you stop me at moments like that, you begin to realize just how how absolutely vulnerable and helpless we all are. And it it brings God back into focus. That's what Paul's doing for these Corinthian people. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Let's be honest. Let's think about who you are in relation to everything else. This is why I love to tell Mac, really, you think you're special? At best, you're a pretty amazing kid in a fourth grade class in Carl Junction, Missouri. And just one of the fourth grade classes in Carl Junction, Missouri. How many of you have never heard of Carl Junction, Missouri? Like, genuinely, raise your hand. So you're not impressed? Think about it. Like, that is how, that is how small we are. So are you telling me, like, my life has no value or importance? No, it just has all of its value and all of its importance in Jesus. Are we okay with that as a church? Like, are we gonna be able to find like joy in that? I hope we can. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. That's how he operates. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are, so that, so why does God operate like this? By the way, this is why I find it so fascinating. I have to just stop and go, why do I want my kids to be so smart and so gifted and so talented and so on top of things when God at times seems to want to be undoing those things? I just have to stop and ask that question sometimes. If you were to ask me, what obstacles get in the way of faith more than anything else? Are you ready for my three? I say them all the time. Are you ready? Um, Intelligence. Morality. I'll give you four. Wealth. And health. Intelligence, morality is kind of one category for me. Okay? Wealth. I don't need God. You know how much money I have? And, 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 yeah, no, I don't, anything to pray for? <clears throat> no, I think I'm good. What would I need God for? I don't, have, I don't have a fever. Like, those things get in the way, don't they? They give us a false sense of, I got this. Do they not? The, the things that we so desperately want, those things that we so desperately believe will give us an understanding of life, Paul seems to be confronting those. And so look at this. Why does God do this? And here's why. Because God knows us so well. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, look at this. You are in Christ. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't recruit me to come here and tell you about the gospel. God sent me to tell you. You didn't figure it out and say, hey, we need Paul. You order that guy to come here. No, no, no. God sent me. The person that shared Jesus with you, God sent that person. You ever thought about that? And by the way, God's sending you to somebody else. Do you realize how like vulnerable your faith was if, if someone hadn't shared that good news about Jesus Christ? Did that ever just like make you swallow hard? The, the fact that my mom and dad said yes to the gospel in 1960 is what set our family in a completely different trajectory. And I wasn't born for, until eight years later. And so it's not like I came out of the womb and said, find Jesus. No. There were things set in motion so that I may never boast in front of him and that you may never boast in front of him. Look at this. I love verse 30. We are in Christ because of him who, this is Jesus, became the wisdom of God to us. He became the righteousness of God to us. He became our sanctification. He became our redemption. Jesus is all of those things. He is the wisdom of God. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. This is who Jesus is. And do you realize that when you have Jesus, there's just really nothing else you could want to brag about? Do you have that? And so Paul ends with, so that it is written. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And honestly, the the real problem is, is that it's just easier for many of us to want to brag on our kids or our own achievements than to truly brag in what God has done for us in Jesus By the way, I don't need you to go from here and go, I am never speaking about my kids in a positive light, ever. So not the point. Because A, I don't think you can do it. But B, that's not the point. 
The point is that everything needs to live in the shadow of Christ. Everything does. And when it does, everything in your life begins to find meaning and purpose. Everything begins to find like hope when you begin to realize, wow, like I really do need to be grateful for what God has done for me in Jesus. I do need to look at all of the gifts of life, like you saw the little one on the screen, or all of the abilities of the little one's mom and dad, or all of the abilities of that little one's grandma, or all of the abilities of whatever, and in the end, everything comes back to thanks be to God, because without him, none of this could be. That's what Paul wants the Corinthian people to do. And that's what we should do too. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for humbling us with the truth that even if, if we were to try to find a way, um, if I were to come up here and to talk about how we should become smarter and better, that it would just lead to depression, that the smartest people in the world aren't naturally the happiest one, the wealthiest people in the world aren't naturally um, the, the, the happiest ones, that God, the true joy that comes, comes from knowing you. And I pray that we would believe that and that we would even, you'd be able to see it on our faces. And so God, we brag that in spite of all of who we are, you have chosen to love us through Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. May we glory in that as a church. May we find hope in that. May we want to invite others into our lives because of the joy that comes from that and share our way of doing life and ministry and helping lives to genuinely improve because we all have Jesus in us and the Spirit to guide us and sustain us. Father, help us from imitation Christianity. Expose it where it has existed in our lives. May we all come to a true and saving knowledge of faith in Jesus our Lord. Work to that ends. For your glory, our benefit, as well as our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to remind you, we have an opportunity for those of you 101 and Table 101, college students and people, please connect at the hub. And also know Lori is going to be down front as well as elders and Stephen ministers to continue this faith conversation. Would love to continue it with you. We love you guys. God bless. And we will see you Wednesday night.